What matters is not whether you make the right decision. What matters is whether you can learn from whatever happens and make a better decision tomorrow and then a better decision again later. That was Didier Elzinga, the co-founder and CEO of Coltramp, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Culture has always been incredibly hard to quantify. How do you measure whether someone is feeling valued? Whether an employee feels alignment included and in the best position to produce the most value to the company while they feel like they're growing? Culture solves this. Culture sets the rules, standards, and values that guide us towards creating something of value every single day. And Coltramp is the perfect feedback loop for us to learn and act upon the feedback from the people in our companies. Opening this episode, we're joined by Chloe Hammond, the Director of People Science at Coltramp. For the opening 15 minutes, she's taken the data from thousands of Coltramp companies to reveal the actionable insights that underpin the best cultures in the world. What makes people stay versus leave and what the most effective managers do. Second, Didier Elzinga, the founder and CEO of Coltramp, shares the early inflection points and how decision-making has evolved to steer what is now a 420-person company. And finally, Nick Crocker, a partner of Blackbird, uncovers his experience joining the board at Coltramp, what he's learned and the principles he's instilled at Blackbird. Now, sadly, this is the last episode for 2020. It's been a wild ride this year and the Wild Hearts team is so grateful for the thousands of listeners tuning in every single fortnight and we'd be so grateful if you shared a review if you have some love to share. I also have to take this time to share my gratitude to the incredible community team of Blackbird. Danny Pincus, the head of community at Blackbird, has helped guide this podcast from the very beginning and Mel Rayner, our special community and communications manager at Blackbird, has truly taken the handle in the last seven or so episodes. I honestly can't thank them enough. Uh, As always, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Now it's time for Chloe Hammond to share the principles that underpin the best cultures in the world. What do the best companies in the world do to create a culture that brings the best out of people? When we look at the strongest drivers of engagement across the world, across our global data set, we see some consistent themes coming out that are separating companies that have the highest engaged employees, often by proxy great cultures, Mm. versus those that don't have highly engaged employees. And consistently over the years, so this is looking at since kind of 2016, and these do change over time. But if we look at drivers of engagement of 2020, it's leadership, no surprises. So leaders instilling a sense of confidence. So companies that are doing great have leaders who breed confidence in their people and they have a a vision that is motivating and they communicate it really well. So sometimes companies have one or the other, they have a great vision and they forget to repeat it Mm. or they communicated a vision, but it's not something people buy into. And so great companies have that. They... The leaders also demonstrate that people are important to the company's success. So leadership plays a a great part, a really important part in this. 
there's often a story around managers are incredibly important, but we forget about leaders in terms of, or it gets overused, but we see it again and again in our data. The second thing is development. So creating a place where people have opportunities to contribute to their development and have good career opportunities. We make the mistake sometimes in assuming people want uh, progression in a traditional sense. What we're seeing is people want this nonlinear progression and opportunities to develop is actually more important than career opportunities. Interesting. And so people want to be in places where they can grow and develop over and above kind of clear career paths. So that's still important, but it's not as important as growth and development. And you've and seen that people are okay with that ambiguity. It's more that it's, they, I think they want to have clarity that they are going to get opportunities. Yeah. But they don't necessarily always want to see that it's, oh, you do two years in here and then you move to that and then you move to that. What we're also seeing is that the companies that are doing great are moving beyond or understanding human motivation. So they're moving beyond status progression, which is you're just moving up the ladder and recognizing alternative pathways to career success. So that would be recognizing a specialist role, for example. So you can progress to an equal status of say a VP or director, but you will be an absolute gun in your field. Absolutely amazing. You're a specialist but you have an opportunity to get the same status and recognition compensation as well as someone who manages a department. Mm. And that is often where there's a conflict and this doesn't get done everywhere where you have amazingly technical people going into managerial roles because there's no other way for them to progress. Uh, so companies that are recognizing these nonlinear paths and mm. specialist progressions are doing really well. The other thing that I guess the third thing that we see is people, I guess, believing or being satisfied with how decisions are made in companies. So there's an operational element to that. And we've seen this creep in more over the, over the last few years. So I would hypothesize that employees are becoming more savvy with where companies are directing their resources. They want to make sure that they are aligning resources to company goals. They want to be more across how decisions are made and they want to see that the company is dedicated to quality and improvement. So it's that kind of operational lens. They want to know that their company is actually dedicated to these things, which is really, which is really interesting. We haven't seen that come up before. It's perhaps more important during COVID as well, the especially oh, the company resources one, where they're paying more attention to where companies putting, where their businesses putting the efforts. And if you think about, it, if you're in a competitive market, your employees uh, want to know that you're thinking about where you're, yeah, you're putting your resources. It also that, relates to hiring and things like that. How does that come through the data? Uh, we see it as there's a few questions that we ask around the space and then we look at how it correlates to engagement. Mm. So the three questions around that is my company effectively directs resources, which is funding, pe funding people and effort towards mm. company goals. I'm satisfied with how decisions are made and day-to-day -day decisions here demonstrate that quality and improvement are top priorities. So we look at responses to those questions and we understand how are they related to engagement. And when we're talking about engagement, we're talking about employees who feel motivated to go on above and beyond, feel proud of the place they work, recommended as a great place to work, and are also going to hang around. They see themselves there in the near term and in the long term. And long term, we mean two years. And so that's how we think about an engaged employee and mm. we look at what are the things that are driving that and it's elements in your culture that are creating 
these levels of engagement and then we drill into what are the specific things that companies that are doing great are doing. Does one example come to mind? In terms of what they're doing from that, from those specifics you mean? Or? Yeah, yeah. One of the things I see more, which is it's a bit of a hack, but it's, it's not always about changing what you do as an organization. Often it is, but more often than not, it's about communicating more widely about why and how you are doing things. So we see these scores improve by just when companies open up something like an ask me anything channel where you can ask the CEO anything and people can go in, why did you direct some of our budget in this way? And they can answer it. <laughs> they have companies who have say the exec, the meetings from their exec meetings publicly or not publicly, but available to all employees. And you can go through and check and they talk about the numbers. So open and honest or like transparency around these things can actually improve the perception because otherwise people make up their own ideas around what is going on. So it's not that you have to change the way you're directing resources necessarily. It's often about talking about it. I love um, that you mentioned that AMA channel, even in Blackbird internally, like it's, it's so good just to ask those hard hitting questions. Yep. Yep. And then it does, it goes, Oh, we're getting feedback on this and you get more specifics from what you actually needed to change. Yeah. So switching gears a little, what do you think makes the best people stay versus leave? Yeah, so we look at data, we try and predict a lot of things, turnover being one of them. And what we can actually do, what we have done is looked at, say last year, we we haven't done it for this year in terms of predicting turnover because it, as you can imagine, the data hasn't yes. been, we haven't been able to predict it. an outlier event. It's been a big mess. <laughs> but if we look at 2019 and, and the years before, you take a year and you look at people who stayed in an organization and how they felt, and you look at employees who decided to leave and how they felt, and then you look at where are the biggest differences. Not surprising, and you look at like what you can predict, if people say they're going to leave, they generally do. So the strongest predictor of why people leave is that they actually tell you. So if you are curious about whether people want to leave or you're concerned, just ask them, do you see yourself here in two years time? Or do you think about looking for another job? And it's the strongest predictor. But when you look at, okay, what is, what are the best, I guess, what are employees experiencing that are staying around versus those that aren't, a sense of belonging comes up. And this is actually really interesting. We're starting to see a sense of belonging is becoming more and more important in our data when you're starting to correlate it to things like uh, company share price growth, which is another whole other report. People being happy with the role they were relative to what was described to them. So if you're not giving your employees realistic job previews, they're more likely to walk out the door. I know this is hard in a startup or in often, you know, fast growing companies because your role might evolve, but don't sell the dream that doesn't exist. So some opportunities be really open, be overly transparent. One of uh, my managers at Culture used to say, I'm, I do my best to convince people out of the job by being so honest. <laughs> so it's, a, it's kind of a nice way to yeah. think about it, but I, it's, it's important. Yeah, we had one, I heard one story from a CEO. He would go to their salespeople in San Francisco and, and he would say, you know, this is going to be hell for the next year and just completely throw them off just to sort of set their expectations around commission, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, yeah, people who are happy with their role relative what, to what was yeah. described to them tend to hang around. The last area, and, and contribution to development is important as well, but an interesting area that makes people stay that is related to belonging is the best companies or places provide a sense of inclusion, specifically by ensuring that people believe that their perspectives are included in decision-making and that their opinion is valued. 
So mm. giving people a voice. So if you think about that, uh, the, something as simple like we spoke about the Ask Me Anything channel is actually a way to have people's perspectives included. If you're a manager, it's simple things like uh, when you ask a question, rather than just letting the most voice, <laughs> the most opinionated person answer and then moving on, pausing and actually going around the room and going, actually, I haven't heard from you, Joe, Sarah, would you mind giving me your perspective? Or finding alternative ways like asking in a group setting and then sending a post afterwards people can, where people can answer or provide their opinion in their own time. So making sure people feel their perspectives are included and their opinion is valued is a really strong reason why people hang around. Yeah, and that's probably, yeah, those are probably the main ones when it comes to turnover or why people stay. Epic. And finally, what do you think makes an effective manager? Mm. I know you guys just launched a, a new product, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, we have. So we look at the strongest drivers, again, of effective managers. No surprises, the career development flavor comes in, but where we see it from a manager point of view, the best managers helping ensure that their people are in the right place in the company to be successful. And so that is, if you think about who can most help an employee with that, it's their manager. Otherwise, they're fighting their own battle. So managers really help do that. They give feedback and development. So not surprising, again, they're showing recognition as well as feedback on how someone's going. Genuinely caring about people's well-being is really important and taking time to get to know people and then also helping them sort of follow through on innovation. So those are the more... I guess, data-driven or purely numerical-driven drivers. We've actually done a project where we've looked at the feedback that managers are getting. So looking at, okay, what qualitative feedback are they getting? What can we learn from that? And the one thing that stands out from that that is really specific but was overwhelming in all of our data, that communication came through, that's no surprising, but that specific aspect of communication was sharing information. So managers who are getting... Uh, I guess the best feedback we're doing really well are sharing information, being open with their teams. And we forget that as like a manager skill, we get caught up in coaching, which is incredibly important, but actually communicating and sharing stuff is really important as well. And ways to do that is, you know, we've got tools around one-on-ones. It's all to help keep that information flow happening. The other thing is around that is that managers are doing things like just checking in, like checking in on a regular basis. So, There was a report by Red Thread that found, I think it was uh, nearly 80% of highly effective managers are checking in on a weekly basis compared to only 30% of non-effective. So regular managers or great managers are just regularly checking in. This helps with the well-being element, which is showing that you care about someone's well-being, especially during COVID. So we saw this really start to differentiate between the best and the, I guess, the worst managers during COVID with those who actually checked in with people at a regular cadence in in the right way as well. We provide, I guess, lots of tools for managers, but the ones that do really well are the ones that help them facilitate conversations. So managers, Mm -hmm. rather than going in and, I guess, trying to make assumptions or having a big spiel, it's all about asking questions. So we say, no, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling about your impact you're having right now? How are you feeling about your growth? How are you feeling about your work-life blend? And you just ask that question and then it opens the door for employees to kind of answer back. How do you think about, as a manager, balancing sharing the right information and being transparent and keeping that open communication line versus just asking questions? Yeah, it's 
I think it's, it, is, it is a hard one. I think one of the things that I do is a lot of recapping what has already been shared. Mm. And I find that really helpful and put a little bit of my perspective on it. But I get lots of feedback that actually incredibly helpful. So it's not that you have to overshare. But an example is we've got lots of communication going around Cultram. Our leadership team does a great job of being really open and transparent with what is there. There can be information overload. So what I do with my different reports and in the group of teams that I lead is provide kind of a mini highlights from what's been happening around the company and then give them the chance to ask me any questions. And I do that at a group level. And then on my one-on-ones, I'll be like, oh, did you see the information that's gone out around X? Do you have any questions? Do you want to know my thoughts? Or how can I help you do something with it or, or anything like that? So that's more how I approach it as a little bit of resharing and then asking questions and giving space to talk about it. That is incredibly insightful. Thank you so much, Chloe. You're welcome. Get ready for the CEO and co-founder of Coltramp, Didier Elzinga. Let's just kick it off right at the beginning with your very first customer. Now, that would have been pretty special. Make-A-Wish Foundation being your first customer mm-hmm. and your, your first survey launch. What was it like getting to that point? We'd already, we tried to build two other products before that first launch. And so it was, I had started on something and met John and Doug and Rod, they'd come on board to help me with that. So that was essentially a performance review replacement it was really around continuous feedback. So mm. we built a product, we had people using it and we were really struggling to get the traction that we thought we needed. So we, we spun up a separate idea, which was based off the checklist manifesto if you've ever read that book and idea of lightweight business process management, what if we had GitHub for processes and you could just document what you were doing and then share it with someone, have them fork it and so on. And uh, cool idea, just too high concept. I think process streets kind of done something similar now, but six months to kill the first one, six weeks to kill the second. And then this idea, we had this idea and we wanted to validate it. So we said, okay, this is what we think we're going to do. We built this four page deck it was like a PowerPoint presentation. And then I went and pitched it to 10 CEOs and four of them said, yeah, yeah, that's great. If you do that, we'll use it. And they were the first one. Make Is there any process in choosing those CEOs? No. Well, our first paid customer was Save the Children Australia. Mm-hmm. And that was because the then CEO, her son and my son went to early learning together. And I was chatting to her at an event and I said, oh, can I tell you what I'm doing? And I pitched and she's like, that would be really helpful. We need that. So in both of those situations, it was the, even when it was just an idea, they're like, yes, that's great. If you can build it, we'll use it. And so that validation of how quickly people wanted it. And in, in both of the situations, we wrote the survey collector we didn't have anything else. We launched the survey and then we were writing the reporting screens while the stuff was coming in. So <laughs> it's like, we're saying, yeah, yeah, it's all there. Don't worry. It'll be there. By the t- you know, when you need to open the report, it'll be there. <laughs> writing it away. <laughs> what was the team dynamic like with those first customers with um, the other founders? It was all hands on deck. And, and also we had our first employee, Dr. Jason McPherson, and he, he is essentially the subject matter expert here. So he'd worked for Conexa in the employee engagement space. He has a background in psychology. Mm. So some of what they were believing in was him and his expertise. And some of what they were believing in was the product that we told them we were going to build. And 
it was, I mean, it was just a lot of fun actually, because we were like, we had this idea for what it could look like. And then people said, yeah, we want it. And then you're just pushing yourself to see how fast you could actually make it true. And then obviously having to cut lots of corners. I still think it's, it's interesting that I can go back to that deck and there's probably a few things in that deck that we still don't have in the product. <laughs> it kills me. It's still in the roadmap though, right? I don't have control of the roadmap anymore, so probably not. Oh, good. Well, we'll touch on that a little later in the episode. And so that's obviously one major inflection point, mm. getting your product in the hands of customers. Mm -hmm. From there, you've got the geek up being born. How did you guys come to that idea and, and what was it like launching that, that first platform? Yeah. I mean, on the first one, I think the thing that was so interesting about getting customers to use it is we realized that particularly as engineers, the question is not, can you build it? The question is, does anyone care? Mm. So, you know, that's easy to say intellectually, but as an engineer, you, as, which we all are, you still feel like, let's just build it let's just get it right. And then, and then people will care. And, and you realize that it's actually much harder to work out what people care about than it is to build it. In terms of the, the community thing, it was a confluence of different events, but largely it was one born out of need in that we philosophically weren't big believers in a kind of more traditional big bang marketing sales approach. And we didn't have the money to do it anyway because we bootstrapped the company to the first million in ARR US. And so we're like, okay, how do we, how do we make this work? And we, I think it was our ninth or 10th customer was in the US. And so we saw an opportunity over there. And so our very first community meetup was in New York. It was just in a bar. We basically sent out a message to a bunch of people and said, hey, we're interested in this topic. If you're interested, come along and chat. And what we found almost straight away was that a couple of crazy Australians flying from Australia to New York and holding up the end of a bar brought together a bunch of people that should have spent time together. You know, it was the head of HR from Chanel. It was a few people from different startups like Squarespace and so on. And you're like, there's an opportunity here if us just creating that space brings people together and creates that community. And I think what had essentially happened was there's lots of really strong, more traditional HR communities but there was this void for people coming together in a more forward-looking world. And, and we started to fill that void. And so from the beginning, the whole idea behind the community was we, we built the company because we believe in creating a better world of work. We want to amplify the experience and the impact of over hundred million people. Every, just focus on anybody that has that problem. Like whether or not they're going to buy or use the software is a secondary question. The first thing is bring together the people that care about the problem that you set up your company to solve. And that's what the community was born from. Well, what? So initially there's the opportunity that people have this shared vision and they should be hanging out of the bar anyway and, 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 and sharing, I guess, their problems and, and how, how they, I guess, connect with each other. What's the glue that then holds it together? I mean, over time, you find different ways of, of meeting those needs. I think the first thing is just to recognize that you as a company are more than just your product. You are a shared set of beliefs in something. And it goes back to the Simon Sinek quote that people don't buy what you're selling, they buy why you're selling it. And so there's a huge amount of power in continually living that out and community is a way of bringing people together 
to remind us all of why we started this thing in the first place. Mm. <laughs> and so the keeping it going sort of takes a life of its own. One of the real challenges and problems with it is it's very hard to trace ROI all the way through that funnel. And, and so the mental model that I kind of have in my head is three co-centric circles. So we have our customers, but the biggest one is what we call culture first. So anybody that believes in the idea that culture first matters. Inside that, we have the group of people who not only believe it, but want to roll up their sleeves and do something about it. That's what we, like who we call the people geeks. And then inside that, we have the people that are paying to use our software. Mm. And rather than thinking about it like a traditional marketing funnel where it's like we bring someone in at the top and then we do these things, I think of it as three pools of water. So you have like a big pool, which is the community. And there's a, a water flow, waterfall over into the people geek community. But you're not trying to trace a point through. You just know that if that pool is deep and that pool is moving, people will flow. Mm. And the same into the people geeks and the same into the product. And then you just focus on making each of those pools as powerful and as effective as they can be for the people in them. Simon Sinek has a few gems, one of them being give first and don't expect anything in return. And part of that, I guess, analogy at the very top of the river is this idea of giving first. Yeah, I think it is important to have that, you know, lead with value and give first. But I think you also have to, at some level, reframe it and believe that for you as a company to create your mission, to deliver on your mission, a whole bunch of people have to be inspired to act that are never your customers. And so you're not actually getting nothing back. <laughs> These people, even if they don't become a CultureAmp customer, they're having a conversation that's leading to them going and doing something different. And our mission is to create a better world of work. Our mission is not to sell X thousand copies of the software. Selling X thousand copies of the software is part of the way we deliver on our mission, but it in itself is not the destination. From there, that was sort of the first step overseas. What was it like building out your first San Francisco and, and New York offices? So we were fortunate in that one of the four of us, so John, who's one of our co-founders, he was the only one at the time, he's now married, not to be married. And so he was open to the idea of spending time over there. So really early on, he just kind of went, oh, well, look, I'll go place myself over in the US and let's see what happens. So having him on the ground was pivotal. There's no way we could have done it without him. And then the San Francisco piece happened because we started getting customers in, in the US, particularly in the Valley. And so, you know, your Airbnbs and your boxes and all Pinterest and all those sorts of companies. And so we were there because that's where we had customers. And so we actually, it was one of the first things we did when we did our series A in 2015 was we actually had an office. So up until that point, it was just whoever's couch John happened to be staying on somewhere in the US mm. was a lot of the, the conversation, a lot of the journey. And then we literally opened an office every year for the next three years in New York and then London. And each of those was driven by the fact that we had a concentration of customers that we wanted to get closer to. And we knew that if we weren't on the ground, we couldn't actually build the community and we couldn't support them in the way that we wanted to. And so that's kind of was, was the, the impetus. And I still don't know if this was smart or stupid, but my theory was we're building a global business because we were starting in Australia global from the beginning. Therefore, we're going to have to have offices in other places. Therefore, let's get it out of the way earlier. And then whilst it'll be painful, <laughs> it'll pay off in the long run. <laughs> Will you, will you ever know? 
Would, would that decision ever, I guess, get a payback on whether it was the right one or not? I don't know. I think hopefully at some point we'll be, you know, we'll hit a spot where everybody else is like, wow, normally you really slow down and you're flying at this point. That's because we made that decision earlier. <laughs> what have been some of the biggest inflection points for you at a personal level growing alongside this company? It's a loaded question. Mm. I think I, I'm now in the habit of every year asking myself, my board, my you know, my coach, my my team, the other founders, etc. What do I have to do to level up next year? And it's an interesting exercise in ego. In that, like I've been a CEO for 16 years now. So the whole lifetime of Coltramp and then I was CEO for five years before I started Coltramp. So on one level, I've got plenty of experience. You know, I probably have more experience as a CEO than many of my board members or investors or whatever it might be. But that also gets in the way of realizing that you need to have a beginner's mind for a lot of things and you have to challenge yourself to begin again. And something that you... I think the biggest challenge to me is I'll hear something and know it intellectually, but not actually believe it emotionally. And so therefore I'm not actually learning it. And one of the, one of the key ones that you get told a lot in building, particularly an engineering slash product company is that at some point your job as the CEO or as any founder is no longer to build a product, but to build a company. And it's easy to say and really freaking hard to do. In that sense, given the 16 years of experience, was it harder for you to be a founder? No, I don't think so. I mean, th there was a, certainly a moment in the early days, actually even before I met Rod and Doug and then, and then and John, and then just the very early bits where we just didn't know. Because like for the first two years, you have no freaking idea whether this is going to work or not. Mm. And you know, I had walked away from a well-paid CEO of a Hollywood visual effects company well, actually it wasn't that well paid, but it was the Hollywood CEO of a Hollywood <laughs> company. Um, going to zero was it certainly a reduction. And so you were asking yourself, am I doing the right thing? And I do remember being in tears at one point, like, am I doing this purely for ego? You know, have I put my own desire to do something great ahead of my families and other things? So that bit was hard, but it, it wasn't hard in the sense that there was a whole bunch that I knew that I would need later but I was just enjoying being on the ground. And I used to joke, and it's still true, that like, you know, as an early stage CEO in a startup, sometimes the highest leverage thing you can do is go get people coffee. Mm. <laughs> Your job is to do whatever other people can't do. And that will change over time as you bring different people into the company. And that suited me down to the ground. So I didn't have a problem with it. Mm. And as you brought people into the company, especially as you started to go from 50 to 100, what were the most helpful things you did to help scale that, that size? I think getting probably the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm the most proud of and the thing that I've learned the most about is I thought that I knew a lot about storytelling working for Hollywood, but I've learned a million times more founding a startup and running a company and just the power of 
spending the time figuring out what stories need to be told and how to keep retelling them and just going through that process over and over again, I still keep learning. <laughs> and so, you know, scaling, there's lots of things you have to get right to scale, but some of them I think is you have to help just reinforce the, the patterns that the thing is being built upon. And that comes from, you know, the founding stories. Like what I learned in Hollywood is the most powerful stories are founding stories, hmm. the origin stories. So how is the origin story of the company useful to people with where we're at now? How does it help guide the scaling? How does it take out some of the complexity? And there's no way of going through it easily. Scaling hurts. Like Matt Kohler from Benchmark said to me something once where he said, every time you double, you basically break the company and then you have to re-knit it. And so like, rather than going to the gym and thinking of it as just, you know, lifting weights and making yourself stronger, you're basically just putting your arm out, snapping it in two and then waiting for it to heal. And then you're snapping it in two again and waiting for it to a heal. Constant, a constant rebirthing. <laughs> yeah. And when you're growing it, you know, 50, 100, 150%. Yeah. At any point in time, there are more people in the company that have been here for less than 12 months than people that have been there for longer. So that means by its nature, the culture and everything is still unformed mm. and so i'd love to understand how you and the team have evolved their decision making as that scaling decision making is the hardest thing like one of our core values is trust people to own decisions and it used to be trust people to make decisions we actually changed the wording because we wanted to better articulate how we were thinking about this in that in a fast startup, speed is hugely important. Like you're optimizing for learning over everything else because that's the one thing you can do better. Like you're usually competing against someone bigger than you. They have more money, more resources, more experience, more relationships, more everything. The one thing they can't do as much as you can is they can't learn as fast. Mm. So you're optimizing for learning and you have the opportunity to keep re rechanging things so like there there's not a lot of one-way doors and there's a lot of opportunity to, to move and improve so when you think about making good decisions decision making relies on skill it relies on experience there's a great line i think which is a lot of good judgment relies on experience and experience comes from bad judgment there's <laughs> like there's a learning process in this right so you got skills you got experience but then the thing that's often overlooked is context and so the reason we centralize decision-making is that we usually, it's not that we think necessarily that the senior people are the best decision-makers from a skill or experience point of view. It's that we think they have uh, asymmetric access to context. Mm. Like as the CEO, you get asked to make decisions because it's assumed that you have more context than anybody else about that decision. So, what's always struck me and what we strive towards is like, how do we share more context? Like the problem is not how do you teach people how to make decisions? The problem is how do you give people the appropriate context in which to make those decisions? And this gets really difficult as you scale because you need people to be able to learn more about all this stuff without overwhelming them. And it's a, con it's a struggle we, we still constantly battle with. Like how do you get signal to noise right? How do you get people to have access to the context they need? And then how do you make it possible for people to make a decision that's actually the wrong decision, but they learn from it. And that's why we move to the own. What matters is not whether you make the right decision. What matters is whether you can learn from whatever happens and make a better decision tomorrow and then a better decision again later. Mm. We try and optimize for that. Where it gets really difficult 
is when I talk to people that come into Coltramp and I ask them about values, that value often comes up as one that people resonates really strongly for people is I've been in places where I wasn't trusted to make decisions, really excited to be somewhere where I can actually, you know, do this. And what I reflect on is that's great. Like that's why we want you here and we're really happy you're going to do it. I'd say the hard part is not you making decisions. The hard point is you trusting other people to make them mm. because at one level, if you're running a team, you want to know that you can go make your own call. So let's say you're an engineering team. You might go, Hey, you know what? I don't want to use a MySQL Postgres database. I want to use a NoSQL database for a bunch of reasons. And you want to be able to make that call. What that value also means is that when the VP of engineering walks over and says, okay, I hear you. I understand why you're trying to make that decision, but I need you to understand that we need to use Postgres for these other reasons. And I want you to accept my decision on that. Are you willing to accept that decision? Mm. So it's, it, there, that's the really hard part. And it's the bit that we struggle with all the time. How do you make it so people make good decisions, are accountable for those decisions? And for me, the, the unlocking question is, rather than jumping into the decision itself, should we or shouldn't we use Mongo for this thing, is to ask who should make this decision and why? So you sort of sit down, you talk it through and go, is this a decision that can just be made at the team level? In which case the VP of engineering saying, Hey, look, here's why I think you should do it the other way. But at the end of the day, this is your decision and you make it. Or is it the other way where you're like, look, I want to be able to do this thing, but I understand why ultimately this needs to be a VP level decision mm. and I'll live with whatever you say. And so it's that question of who to start with. And then I've often found that can help unlock stuff because once you've said, okay, who now tell me everything you want to tell me and then yep. let me make my decision. That's where alignment happens by starting. Where with alignment you. should happen. Much easier to say than to do. Directing a 400 person ship. <laughs> well, I think our, where it becomes a problem for us is, and, and this has been a learning process, is that it's easy to say all this stuff and it's easy for me to say that what happens is people get unclear in a fairly flat organization who should make a certain decision. So people don't make decisions, decisions don't get made. And so one of my other realizations was that as a senior person, one of the things you can do is to confer your authority onto other people. So you can sit down and say, Hey, this is a really important decision, but Mason, I actually think you're the right person to make this decision. So I would like you to make this decision on behalf of the company. And then you're using your symbolic, placing the thing to allow somebody else to get in there and make a decision that needs to be made and it can stop a lot of relitigation. And so that's a skill that we try and develop in, in senior leaders too, but I'm certainly not the expert on this. It's a thing we struggle with constantly mm. that balance of how you make good decisions and how you do it in a decentralized way. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is certainly a tension there and on that idea of speed and who, as you build out that who and the number of who's, then it starts looking like a pyramid. How do you sort of structure the organization in a way so that you can still move really quickly? Yeah. So we, the way we work is in a kind of team of teams model. So we, with this concept of trying to use teams as an atomic unit rather than individuals. But at the same time, I'm a big believer that when a decision needs to be made, you want to just, you want an individual, not the team. So it's mm -hmm. not, this has to be approved by exec this is a CEO decision that you want the CEO to run past exec, or this is a growth team or whichever team. And the biggest challenge is wayfaring. Like you don't even know that there's a person who might have 
you know, something that's important in this. And it's something that I, I think about all the time and I don't have a good answer to mm. <laughs> because, you know, in some ways the easiest answer is to have a traditional hierarchy and then decision rights are really, really freaking simple. The flatter you go, the more network topology you have, the bigger, the harder the wayfaring problem is to know whose decision it should be. And so you have to create a really thoughtful culture where people are constantly asking, all right, a decision, first of all, a decision needs to be made. Okay. Can I make this decision? Why would it be a bad idea for me to make this decision? If I can't, who would be the right person to make this decision? It requires quite a high level of cognitive modeling to be able to go through that process. It's much easier to go, oh, that's above my pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think one of the North Stars though is is the company's values now what are coltramp's values what what has helped you especially thrive in the year that we've just had yeah so funnily enough i actually just got off a call uh like a little presentation virtual presentation for dovetail who i do spending a day thinking about their values so i was just talking to them about how our mental model for values shout out to dovetail yeah shout out to dovetail (laughs) fast fast growing um amazing product uh, startup here in Australia, which I'm always excited to hear about. And one of the things I said to them is the model that I, the way I always start thinking about values is this, which is there's a Archimedes quote, you know, how do I move the world? Do you know the quote? I don't. You, you probably have heard it, which is when I ask people, what is the quote? People will say, give me a lever long enough and I can oh, move yes. the world. Yes. And they always miss the middle line. So the actual quote is give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I can move the world. Mm. And so for me, the values and the culture more broadly is the fulcrum of your business. It's where you place your feet for everything else. So there's all this work you have to do in building this long lever. You know, startups are all about leverage, but where you choose to place your feet really, really matters. And so for me, that starts with the values. So the values that we have at Culture Amp, we have four. There were three that were originally written by the founders, and then there was a fourth one that we created with everyone in the company about two years later. And what we actually did was we, we did these workshops. So every quarter we looked at one value and then the fourth one was an open one. And we asked ourselves, what's the meaning? What's the relevance? And what's the mutuality of this value? So what does the value mean? Why is it relevant in Culture Amp? And then what does it tell you to expect from Culture Amp? But also what does it tell you that Culture Amp will expect from you? And so the, the three original values were have the courage to be vulnerable which is our sort of first and foundational value that everything else flows from. The second is learn faster through feedback. The third is trust people to own decisions, which we talked about earlier. And then the fourth one, which actually came from us as a, as an organization reflecting on the other three values and saying, what is it that's true about culture amp that we're not calling out here? What's there, but, but not said. And that became amplify others as something that's, that's integral to the way culture amp works. And so it kind of comes to this idea that at the end of the day, we, we believe in hunting as a pack, not eat what you kill. That kind of flows through everything that we do. So this year has been so tough for, for so many people, me included, because it just feels like it's just a constant stream of things that are knocking you over. And what makes it even harder is that I know compared to so many others, I've had a dream run. Like, you know, we're here in Australia, things are opening up. Like we as a business responded really well. There's lots of things that 
have gone really, really well, yeah, I still feel like shit. Mm. Like it's, and, and the fact that I know that other people have the worst experience and I feel bad makes me feel bad about feeling bad. And now I feel even worse. And so I always, when I find myself in that place, I always go back to, well, okay, what are we trying to do here? What's our mission? What are our values? And how do I live those? It's kind of like you're in a storm. All you can do is put one foot in front of the other. And, and the values for me are, are what I draw from. And, and it's not that they're the answer to questions, but looking at those values and thinking about those values makes me want to be the person that I want to be. It gives me a reason to keep putting a foot in front of the other. Mm. <laughs> so I look at it and go, those values describe a culture and a company and a place and a world that I want to be part of. And it's not easy and it will ask a lot of me, but it's worthwhile. How often have you found sharing what those values are and communicating what they are to the entire organization? I think there's, there's definitely more that we can do on this. Like values are one of those things where you're never finished. So the, the first thing, which I think we do really well is communicating them, using them as a lens. So when we, when we're doing something, we sit down and go, Oh, how do, how does this look through a value lens? What does it mean to have the courage to be vulnerable here? What does it mean to learn faster through feedback here? And so it's a really useful lens just to apply to everything. And mm. we've seen it when we talk about, you know, any major project that we run, there'll be a values lens attached to it, which is really powerful. As I talked about before, meaning, relevance, mutuality, all of that sort of stuff, where we're at and the journey that we're on now is what I would call the next stage, which is to say, what are the golden and the shadow sides of those values? So the golden sides are the behaviors and the things that people do that deliver, create value and, and create positivity uh, in the world and the people around you. The shadow side is either that done too much. So strength overplayed becoming a weakness or the harder one, essentially weaponization of the value. So people are using the value to describe behaviors that are actually often in the reverse of what the thing was meant for, but it's used to to cover it. And so an example of this is, this isn't one of our values, but sometimes people will have a value, which is assume good intent, very powerful value, can have some really good golden sides about speeding up empathy, moving faster in decisions, getting people to always go, oh, okay, like that provoked something in me, but I obviously missed something. What were you actually meaning? The, the shadow side of that value is that it can create space for microaggressions where someone's basically constantly ridiculing somebody else and they're like, look, I'm feeling really bad the way you're interacting with me. And the person, oh, but that's not what I meant. You got to assume good intent. You're mm. not assuming good intent here. And so that's them using that value to the shadow side of that value. So where we're at as an organization now is really exploring, okay, these are our values and these are all the good things about them. Where does it get weaponized? Where does it become a, a shadow side. And you've got to do a lot of work on that to turn those into behaviors that actually people can measure themselves up against. And so last quarter, you launched a new campaign. We can't keep managing like this. And you released a new set of tools for managers. Why is it important for Coltramp to be more embedded in building tools for managers? So I think there's, there's two different answers to that question. One is, I would say, generically true. Even if we hadn't had this year, it would still be true. And we'd started this strategy before COVID hit. And then the second one, I think, is made even more so and heightened because of what's happened through COVID. 
So the, the first one is, and not just COVID, obviously, this is a year that's been giving us so much mm. racial trauma, you know, electoral confusion, all sorts of things. Yep. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. That champagne <laughs> on, on uh, New Year's Eve is going to taste pretty sweet. The, the bigger thing is, you know, at its core, what Culture Amp is about is understanding what matters to your people and then taking action on that acting on it, doing something with that information, actually changing things and making a difference. And there's a lot of tech that goes into the first part in terms of the understanding. There's a lot of sophisticated analytics. There's a lot of powerful tools to collect all that data and help you understand what's going on. But the really hard part, but also the bit that actually creates value is when you get people to do something with it. So what is it that we're actually getting people to act on and, and how and why, and what are we doing to support them? And HR has an incredibly tough job. Like, they have, they're really, really, really difficult position. And at the end of the day, whether or not they're successful or not, ultimately depends on whether or not managers are able to change their behavior. So much, I spoke to a really great CPO and she said to me, you can pretty much boil down almost all of people and culture and people and talent and HR and all of that down to one thing. Can we get our senior people to have difficult conversations with other people. Like if you can do that, everything else works. <laughs> um, it's really, really hard. So what we realized was that in the end game, if we're gonna deliver on our mission, if our product's gonna deliver what it needs to deliver, it's gonna basically hinge on that. Like, can we help managers be more effective? Can we actually change their behavior? Can we give them insight? Uh, and can we take them on that journey? And there's a truckload of behavior science and all that other stuff that we push into the tool to help support it. So one was realizing if we're going to win, if we're going to deliver on our mission, we have to be able to help managers. So our th strategic through line for the year is actually make HR successful by making managers successful. Mm -hmm. HR is going to be successful. We have to help them make managers successful. So that's the first piece. The second piece and, and, and really where that campaign came from was this realization that this is tough for absolutely everybody. Like everybody is getting, having to deal with this in so many different ways, massively in a personal context and in a work context. And in a work context, managers are kind of being squished in the middle because people everywhere need more than they ever have just because of the craziness of the world. And the managers were struggling and ill-equipped before. <laughs> the, the needs and demands have gone up. And at the same time, they're struggling through all the same issues themselves. Like, we have a channel internally at Coltram called Leaders where people share different bits and pieces. And somebody just basically spun up a thing, just sharing an observation where they're like, I just, I'm just feeling like I'm struggling so much right now. You know, are other people feeling the same? And everyone's like, yeah, like this year, just taking everything I have. Yeah. And I keep trying to do a better job, but I just don't think I am. That is universal. We're seeing that everywhere. And so really what we're doing is leaning into that and going, how do we help? And we don't help by just going, here's a single tool that will fix all your problems. We have to kind of approach it holistically. So 2021's for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't worry. It's coming. January 1st, 2021, all your problems will be solved. And so universal issues for, for managers all around the world. What are some of those issues that they're actually struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis? And what are some of those tools that Coltramp is thinking about and has launched that is going to best support managers in their journey? I think at the moment, one of the questions we're hearing all the time 
I mean, it, it starts with like, we're all now working from home offices and all over the place. I don't know how people are feeling. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if the stuff I'm doing is landing. I don't know whether somebody's just about to break. So the first question is people don't know and they need more insight. And so that's a fairly, like that's a problem that we've been working on for a long time. So we have lots of tools to help people get a better understanding of what, what's going on. As they get that awareness, they're like, all right, I know people are hurting. I know people are struggling. I know these people are doing well. Then it leads to what conversations do I need to be having to be able to move forward? And, and this is a, a, there's a, like, we could talk for three hours about what comes in under that because it's not just, it's like, what conversations do I need to be having to ensure that we have the right level of accountability to ensure that we're delivering the right level of performance for the business, but it's also to make sure that they feel heard. It's to lean into and address issues of systemic inequality, to deal with DEI issues, to deal with mental well-being. Like, how do I create space? Like the big problem that everyone, one of the problems that a lot of people are seeing at the moment is that outside of work, because of COVID and other things, people have almost no control over their lives. Mm. And this is incredibly destabilizing. And so how in the, in, in the work context, can we give people some of that stuff back in a, in a world where as business leaders, we have no idea what's coming. Like the world's so topsy-turvy. So there's all these things about what types of conversations and how do we frame those conversations? How do we give people skills to have those conversations? And then as you start to unpack that, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that managers need to be equipped with. And one of the ways I think about it is it's not just the old school model of this is kind of like deliberate practice. Okay, you're a manager. Here's what manager 101 looks like. Here are nine skills you have to learn. Here are 22 YouTube videos to go watch. The problem is not a content problem. <laughs> like there is a world of how to be a great manager out there. The problem is how do we influence your choice in the moment when you need it? Like how do we influence essentially the choice architecture in your head as a manager? How do we change the way you think about your one-on-one? How do we equip you to when the person goes, why are we doing this? Not snap their head off, but step back and go, oh, that's actually a really good question. What do you think's driving towards that? How do we create safe spaces, et cetera? So Context. In, in software, that's what we're doing. So we, we, we delivered this thing called Skills Coach, which is really taking a lot of the best thinking in this space and delivering it in a two minute a day forum. Because once again, the problem is not that the knowledge is there, not there. The problem is that the knowledge is not accessible. It's not available. It's not delivered to me in a way that I can consume and will actually get me to go, huh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And so there's a whole bunch of behavior science that comes behind that in terms of how do you actually change behavior, not just tell mm. people what to do. Yep. Um, and then we also rolled out our, our one-on-ones, which is about starting to create that space for the conversations. And because we have such a strong people science background, it's a vehicle through which we can actually give people really great starting points for those conversations and then aggregate that data together to, to build on it. And what are some of the insights that you've taken away since the launch about how managers, I guess, performing? So one of the fascinating things about managers is like, you know, if you've done any product work, you're always like, oh, let's have our personas. Yep. The, a manager is the broadest possible persona you can possibly imagine. <laughs> The theoretical manager doesn't. What do you do? I'm a manager. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, does that mean that you've now got responsibility for people for the first time ever in your career? Does it mean that you're running a team of people who each run 20,000 person, you know, P 
P&Ls, like everything in between. So first of all, just this real realization of just how broad it is and how many different types of people are in there. There are some universal needs, but there's so many different archetypes. We've also found, which we kind of knew, but it was interesting to see, that one of the big problems is people don't really trust managers. <laughs> mm. So that uh, is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably fair enough because a lot of them are, you know, never been taught how to do it and, and are struggling with these things anyway. So there's this whole back and forth in terms of how do we all go on a journey together? How do we give people tools? How do we get some sense that those tools are being used effectively? How do we aggregate that information up into useful and, and, and effective ways? And the, the biggest challenge that managers have and what we're hearing from them is they're chronically time poor and they need to find ways. If you're going to teach them something, they have to be able to use it in the flow of work. Like don't go teach me something that I have to do in some other way. And so that's, that was really the genesis of the skills coach, which is like, how do we give you something which is reliable so that I'm like, cool, I know this is going to, only going to take two minutes. I can actually do this while pretending to listen to the CEO in the all can. Cool, I'm done. <laughs> and then of the out of that, it has to be something that I'm now going to be able to use two hours later in a meeting. Yep. Because if I can't, I'm just, I just don't have the bandwidth. And so we're constantly finding those opportunities to, to you know, do that in the flow of work. Mm. And like I said, we knew that. But what we're seeing in the data is just how you know, massively important that is for managers getting better and to build trust what should managers do this is two different pieces to it one is you know trust is a residue and promises fulfilled so you earn trust you earn trust by doing the things you say you're going to do the, the other part which is where we explore a lot of and it goes back to our first value which is have the courage to be vulnerable i'm more likely to trust you if I feel like I know you or know something about you at a more vulnerable level than you're probably used to sharing with me. So one of the bits of advice that often gets given to senior leaders is if you get up in front of people and say, I actually don't have all the answers here. Here's what I do know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I'm thinking. And I'd love some help here. We're sort of taught that that's weakness and that people will think we're not doing our job. But that's actually much more, you're much more likely to trust a leader that tells you what they don't know than one who either doesn't say anything or, or pretends to know stuff they don't. Mm. So having that courage to be vulnerable. And what we found in the world we're in today is given all the shit that's going through with everybody, having somebody be able to sit down and say, at the sort of meeting, oh, like, you know, I've just had a, a horrible 24 hours. This stuff's going wrong in my life you know, I'm challenging, you know, how are you going? Are you okay? One of the CEOs I know made this point. It's like, you know, as CEOs, as, as, as founders, as senior leaders, for us to be on Zoom calls and then to go, oh, wait a second, I've just got to help my son, daughter, dog, whatever, you know, to have the same life that everybody else has creates space for them to be there. Like they're, they're doing it. They just don't know whether it's allowed. Mm. And I, hopefully it's one of the good things that's come out of this whole, you know, COVID experience is... I think people felt a lot less precious about it. You know, I think a year ago there was still this thing, oh, if I'm on a Zoom call, I have to have a you know, certain time. It has to be perfect and nobody can come into the shot and I have to pretend like I'm in the office. <laughs> Whereas now people are like, it's, you know, I'm, yes, you're in my bedroom. Yes. yes. I can take the call. 
<laughs> I've seen a few trolls though taking it too far though recently. But people will always take something too far. <laughs> Listen, Didier, thank you so much for your time and for joining me on Wild Hearts. My pleasure. Thanks, Mason. He's Nick Rocker, a general partner of Blackbird and a board member of Coltrane. NC, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mason. Great to be here. <laughs> what was it like joining the board in 2018? Undoubtedly a career highlight to join a company that has grown so strongly since, since that point in 20, 2018 to get to work with Felicis and Sapphire Ventures and now Rolly, who's our independent director, but most importantly with the Culture Ramp founders. And in particular with Didier has been just a huge privilege. I've learned so much. And I think at first I was a little intimidated and worried that I um, wouldn't add value or would be taking up space, but I've found ways to make myself useful and, and enjoyed it thoroughly. So what are some of the lessons that come to mind straight away when I ask you that question? Well, it's pretty obvious to say, but the importance of culture. Is it obvious? Uh, it is culture amp. It says it's it in obvious the right. for it culture, it. but but is it obvious for companies around the world? It says it right on the tin. Culture. It's amp. obvious for three thousand customers that they have. Well, look, as as someone that sent out Blackbird's culture amp survey this morning, and has spent many many hours this year pouring over culture amp data and thinking about how we can move the needle on different parts of our culture, I just I don't know how you'd run a great company without something like culture amp giving you quantitative feedback on how your organization is progressing so so yeah culture culture matters and culture is what makes culture amp special learn the benefit of having a great ceo just how many problems you don't have um, to deal with when when you're working with someone really excellent i do think didier has distinguished himself as one of the best ceos in the country period i'm not saying best ceos of a startup or best ceos of a high growth company like best ceos um, in Australia right now, he's he's right up there, and just watching him work is is a great privilege. What are some of the things you've seen him excel at? He just has incredible self awareness, and so he can navigate through problems with a real clarity that I see other founders potentially mismanaging because either ego gets in the way, or they have a point to prove, or they have something that's something that's holding them back and, and Didier is just just the, the level of emotional maturity um, that he and the rest of the founders display in working through hard problems gives you a chance to solve every problem without coming unstuck along the way mm. you mentioned you after <laughs> shortly after you joined the board Coltramp acquired Sukata. what was the process like yeah, it was awesome to see up close because Zagata really enabled us to launch our second product line, which is performance. So the big thing or the big takeaway for, for me from that transaction, and it's been a really successful one. And I think success is in these acquisitions is often measured by how long the team that you acquire stays with the company that does the acquisition and how engaged they are. And, and on that front, we've done really, really well. Not just did we get a great new performance product, to roll out to customers, but we got a, we got a great team that, that has stayed a long time. But the thing that I learned that I'll take forward from that process is 
that you, if you invest a lot up front in making sure there's a culture fit, making sure the new team members feel valued and making sure the new team members have a real path forward for success, actually you'll lock in a huge amount of the value of the transaction in, in investing that time. And it's not just about buying the revenue or buying the product. It's actually about buying the team and keeping that team engaged. And I was really, it brought out the best of culture amp to see them do that. How do you think they were able to pull off the integration from one team to another, different cultures, different products? What does that look like? I guess the thing that I observed was at a high level. So founders and senior leaders, they were really invested in making it work. They were doing phone calls with the engineers on the Zagata team. They were, making sure that they spent time with them in their offices. They really made it a priority to, to make it work and didn't outsource it and didn't, wasn't an M&A team that led the transaction. It was, it was the founders and the leaders at Culture Amp that did it. And, and that made all the difference because once you saw the leaders bought in at that level, everyone else followed. And I think you and I were at one of the Culture Amp offsites that as a Garda team was, was introduced. Was it was epic and they were, they were cherished and held up and, and they were made to feel a part of the team. And I, I don't think that was a, that was very genuine. And I think mm-hmm. that process was very deliberate and, and has been core to the success of, of that acquisition. Another thing we did together was help the Coltramp founders think about their compensation and, and we reviewed it together. You really underpinned the decision-making there. What did you learn from that process? Yeah, so for full context, when when I came in to, to the board and I saw probably what everyone was getting paid, it was clear that the, the founders hadn't really increased their salaries since the seed round. And maybe they had, but they were seed round type salaries. And we were talking about a very valuable company with thousands of customers around the world. So it became pretty important to um, remedy that, I thought. And... So you and I did go through a process of really trying to come up with, with, with a really robust data set to, to underpin that process. I guess the thing I learned is that when you are on a board and you volunteer for the compensation committee, you don't know what you're getting into. It is an extraordinary <laughs> amount of work. And when you are talking about salaries and equity and working through balancing um, all the competing priorities. It's actually quite a fraught process. It takes a huge amount of effort and energy and EQ to properly manage. So it was a really good experience. I learned a lot. I think the founders are now compensated fairly and in line with, with a company of Coltramp scale and in line with their incredible skills and, and talents and, and all the, everything they bring. What are they making? But, <laughs> <laughs> A, do, a dollar each. They're all working for a dollar each. <laughs> so another they're thing making, that I really... well, you should know. You did the work, so you, you'll know they're making they're making right on the global median for companies yes. of their size and scale. So yes, I'm only trolling. I'm I'm surprised you don't remember that. <laughs> another thing that I'm really intrigued about is just how you structure your relationship at the board level with the Coltramp team. Yeah, so the board meetings are quarterly. And something that I take it on myself to do every board meeting is I have about a week gap between the board meeting and then I'll send an email to Didier with my reflections on what was good, what could be improved, what I'd like to see next time, what were the key things that came out for me. It's a good, it's a good um, test for Didier to figure out if his key messages came across because if they didn't come across to me, 
then that's sort of like a good sign that they might need you know, refining or evolving. So I really enjoyed that process of, of really being present in the meetings and really taking the time to reflect. So, so that's, that's one part as it pertains to the board meeting. Didier and I have a week, a fortnightly one-on-one for an hour where we catch up on you know, every two weeks is a long time in the life of a startup. So you can more than fill an hour every two weeks in terms of things to discuss and opportunities to, to reflect on. So that's a really important kind of cadence and relationship. And then I meet uh, Rod, who's founder and chief product officer. And he and I have lunch once a month and catch up and, and specifically go deep on product. And that, that, was, that was a really good lesson for um, other founders as they build their boards. And I actually think it was Scott at Atlassian who gave Didier this idea, which is that you pair board members with one of the senior leaders and, and try and align expertise. So not that I've ever been the chief product officer of a company like CultureAmp, but I did come from a product background. And so Rod and I can have you know, pretty detailed conversations also, I am such a heavy user of the culture around product itself. So I can also just bring the nuffy admin person trying to figure out how to do things perspective, which is actually really valuable to when you're, when you're so deep in the product, it's nice for someone just to come in who doesn't have all the context and just say, Hey, this was a bad experience. This was good. We can improve this. We should change this. Mm. So Rod and I catch up monthly and then I try and I have irregular, but, but reasonably frequent catch ups with the other board members just to, just to make sure that like we have that really kind of collegiate good relationship, which I think is really well done at Culture Amp. That kind of connection between board members is really emphasized. And so overall, it's a, it's a very high functioning board, I think, and that's a credit to Didier's leadership. You get to catch up with Didier quite a bit. What do you most admire about him? He's an awesome storyteller. <laughs> So when you see him on, on, you can look him up on YouTube and watch the talks that he's done. I think, you know, one of my favorites is the one he did at our Sunrise Conference. He's an awesome storyteller. So he, his capacity to inspire and engage is just amazing. I think most, yeah. most CEOs would, would be envious of his ability um, to do that. And then the other thing that he is just off the charts on is just the self-awareness and the EQ which enables him to solve really tricky problems from a really solid foundation. And he doesn't get in his own way. And, and most founders do. And so that, that EQ is really, and it's, it's across all the founders. It's just, it's just really high functioning and super emotionally aware. And it just, that just makes things so much easier, especially when things are difficult. And, and so I really admire that about Didier and also about, really the, the, the whole founder group at Culture Round for the way they do that. It's quite amazing. What have you learned working alongside him on the board? Yeah, it's a good question. He, he runs a really tight meeting. <laughs> it's, you, think it's an, you, you think that's an easy skill to have, but the ability to keep you know, a pretty large group of people who are all reasonably smart, reasonably opinionated, and to, to manage and direct a meeting is incredible skill making sure people feel heard, but also making sure people don't go too long when they're, when they're um, taking a stance. So I've definitely learned that I've got an upgraded version now in my mind of what it, what it is to keep a meeting on time and keep the meeting running and keeping people and the discussion focused. So one thing that I learned from Didier is that you can actually stop a discussion midstream and you can say, 
everyone, this is not on topic. This isn't in the agenda. It's something that can be better resolved outside of the meeting. So let's take it on notice and keep on track. And to be able to do that without um, offending or you know, without putting a handbrake on the meeting is mm. actually a very subtle but very valuable skill because uh, I would say most board meetings descend into a sort of a loose, fluffy, kind of nebulous discussion and Didier never lets that happen. So I've definitely learned that. And there's a lot of things, but on, at a pure board level, that's one that I've definitely copied. I have noticed it firsthand. In <laughs> <laughs> I take that as a compliment. <laughs> Huge compliment. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Didier. What excites you about the future of Culture Amp? So I think the first part of the journey is sort of complete in a sense. We're the largest independent provider of the culture, you know, culture engagement, for lack of a better description. And so, you know, that, will, that, that part of the business will continue to grow. But the excitement for me is around the new frontiers and the one that's, you know, from a 2021 lens, the one I'm most excited about is putting tools in the hands of managers. So I think the, the campaign was called, we can't keep managing like this. And anyone who's been a manager, anyone who's been a first time manager just knows actually how difficult it is. It's a bit like parenting. You suddenly become a manager, but no one ever teaches you how. And I think Culture Amp has as good a chance as anyone of building a set of manager tools to make managers better as really anyone in the market. And if you have a sort of analytical baseline through the engagement surveys and then build on top of that a set of tools for managers to take what they learn from the engagement surveys and have direct impact on the people that they manage, that's how you actually change organizations. Because as organizations get larger and larger, CEOs are always operating through other people and through layers and layers of other people. So ultimately, if you want change to come about, you need to get that message down through multiple layers of management to an individual contributor. And, and so you're relying on the management layer of your company to, to succeed. And as anyone who has been managed or been a manager knows, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. And so I love the early approach that we're taking sort of philosophy and very culture amp and, that part of the business is, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the part of the business that I'm probably most excited about in the upcoming year. What do you see trickling down from the leaders down to the rest of the team? I think the most culture empty thing that starts <laughs> with the founders and goes, goes um, to the entire team is the courage to be vulnerable. And so that's a core culture and value. And I think there's really very few companies in the world that would build their you know, build their success on a pillar of courage to be vulnerable. It's a very kind of unique and different value. But I do think that the kinds of conversations that happen inside Culture Amp are very different to the kinds of conversations that happen in most companies. And that, be, that is because the leaders role model vulnerability in a really uh, incredible way. And so that's, that's the thing when I talk to, that is just so evident and I, I love that. And I think that's very differentiated. The companies Blackbird is backing are getting larger and larger. We're making more follow-on investments. How do you think Blackbird's follow-on investment decision-making has evolved? So I think typically people think of seed stage investing and they think of follow-on investing and they or late stage investing and they see them as two different things. And I think one thing that is unique about Blackbird is we see them on a continuum. 
whether it's seed stage or follow-on investing, what you're hoping for is a really deep understanding of the company you're about to invest in. Now, the best way to build that deep understanding is to follow the journey up close with access to the truth over a really long period of time and to build trust with those founders so that when it comes time to follow to do those follow-on rounds, you're not you're not dancing at six paces from each other. Like you really know each other really profoundly well. So I think we don't think of it as early stage and follow-on investing. We just think like, is this a great company and do we know enough to make a confident decision right now? And I think it's something that's that's really set us apart is our willingness to continue to invest right throughout the journey of the company. And Culture Ramp's a great example. We didn't lead a Culture Ramp round until we led the Series D. So we did seed A, B, C as participants. And then in, in, for the D, we finally had a fund size that was big enough for us to lean in and invest. And so we did. And so just a great example of building conviction over time, building a really big data set of insight into what that company stands for and the opportunity in front of it. And then when the opportunity arises, having the trust of the founder such that you can lead around like we did then. I don't agree with this opinion, but when we invest in the seed stage, we have X amount of ownership or the series A or any other round for that matter. But anyway, what's to say that we already feel locked into that company once we've invested once in them and over time we are fueling them with more capital to increase their probability of success even when it's not justified it's a good question i guess you just have to look at the portfolio and ask how often have we followed on hard and i would say it's on rare occasions that we do that it's not on all occasions and so i think that speaks to our ability to differentiate between opportunities where you can deploy follow-on funding and where you can't and so i think if we were locked in you would see it as we would fund it everyone multiple times and i don't think that's the case what do you think blackbird has changed as a result from what you've learned at culture Amp? well the culture Amp board decks are some of the best that we see and so inevitably, I think the clarity in the Blackbird board decks is inspired by the clarity that we see in the culture out board decks. That's, that's um, absolutely certain. And then basically like the core pillar of what's going to make Blackbird successful as it scales is an incredible culture. And we have been tracking our culture out through culture out since we were five people. And we run all of our decision-making about how to build our organization on CultureAmp with CultureAmp data and then tracking whether we change what we wanted to change every quarter uh, on the basis of CultureAmp surveys. So we've grown, we've, CultureAmp powers everything that Blackbird is about and that the importance of culture is probably one of the most sort of passionate threads of inquiry for us at Blackbird. It's, it's trying to find those great cultures, trying to empower great cultures, trying to make culture something that you can measure and, and, and track over time. And so it's been really intertwined with our journey uh, as a fund. Looking at a company's culture, does it influence your investment decision making? Massively, massively. <laughs> when I see a 90 person company with a culture amp score at 90, like I know something really special is happening there. And yeah, I, when you see high culture amp engagement scores, you know that the founders and the team is building something 
incredibly special. And the, the benefit in a practical sense is that you'll be able to retain your best people and continue to attract the best people because you'll retain best people who will give you great word of mouth to other people like them. And so I think culture is a competitive differentiator. And so when I see, you know, really strong cultural engagement, you know, when you've got lots of people on the team, I get very, very excited. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review.